Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Kia ora everyone, this is Mickey. you're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the show I speak to psychiatrist Dr Christopher Palmer, all about nutritional psychiatry and the intersect between metabolic health and brain health. We discuss how these two concepts are linked, the problem with current therapies for mental health, and the use of the ketogenic diet as a tool to help improve patient outcomes. Now, I have been very aware of Dr. Palmer's work over the years and had the pleasure of attending the Metabolic Health Summit in May, where he spoke with a patient of his in a forum-based setting about just how powerful the ketogenic diet can be. So I was so stoked that uh, Dr. Palmer took the time to chat to me for this podcast. So Christopher Palmer received his medical degree from Washington University School of Medicine. He did his internship and psychiatry residency at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He's currently the director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education at McLean Hospital and an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. So he is teaching other physicians the tools and the knowledge to help inform their practice in and around brain health and the ketogenic diet, in and amongst other things as well. So Dr. Palmer's clinical practice has focused on helping people suffering from treatment-resistant mental illnesses, including mood disorders, psychotic disorders, and personality disorders. His treatment approach has been comprehensive and has included psychopharmacology, psychotherapy and complementary and alternative treatments. However, he has always been looking for better treatments and outcomes because far too many people do not get better with the current approaches and we discuss that in this podcast. So I include links to how to find Dr. Palmer and how to order his book coming out this November, Brain Energy, in the show notes for today's episode. And in addition to that, there is a link in the show notes to my weight loss masterclass free webinar that I am doing in a week's time, Wednesday 24th of August. So that'll be a week when this podcast comes out. If you sign up to that, it is free. And if you can't make it live, you will get sent the recording. So I talk you through some of the main pillars that are included in my Monday's Matter program because that is also launching in early September. So absolutely go over to those show notes and pop your details in there if that is of interest to you. And of course, please, if you do enjoy the podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, share this episode in any other episodes with some of your mates so more people can be informed of some of the things which the experts on this show are sharing with us. For now though, please enjoy the conversation that I had with Dr. Chris Palmer. Dr. Chris Palmer, thank you so much for joining me this morning, your morning. Uh, I really 
the opportunity to chat to you about mental health, about uh, nutritional sort of interventions, and also, of course, your book, Brain Energy, which I understand is available for pre-order now, not necessarily that we can go and read it, but as I see a lot of um, really good reviews from people who have um, had the opportunity to have a look, uh, colleagues and peers. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on the show. Chris, as I understand it, your background or your connection to ketogenic diet, uh, like many people, sort of came from your own personal experience, even though not necessarily from a, um, a mental health perspective for you. Can you chat about how you sort of came across, I suppose, the ketogenic diet? I came upon it when it was still primarily called the Atkins diet. Um, so about 20 some years ago. And I was in my 20s, was doing my residency in you know, medicine and psychiatry, and was already diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. And I was very diligent about my health. I was obsessively following a low-fat diet because that is what we were told to eat. And uh, I was exercising pretty regularly, at least three times a week at the gym. So I very much wanted to avoid health problems. But nonetheless, my blood pressure was going up. My triglycerides were high. My HDL was low. I was pre-diabetic, all of it. And year after year, I went to my doctor and he kept telling me I needed to do diet and exercise in order to take care of this. I kept asking him exactly what diet, exactly what exercise. Uh, he would then tell me a low-fat diet and go to the gym like three days a week. I'm like, well, that's what I'm doing and it's not working. You know, and at one point, he kind of said, you know, well, you know, does diabetes run in your family? And of course, both of my parents were diabetic. And uh, so I said, yes. And his answer was just kind of shrug his shoulders. Well, sucks to be you. You know, it must be genetic. We're going to have to put you on medicine. And again, I'm only in my 20s and already I'm going to be going on blood pressure medicine and diabetes medicine. I'm like, this does not bode well for my long-term health outcomes. And so I, I, I kept resisting medication. I finally pushed back and said, you know, give me, give me a few months. I'm going to try something different and uh, we'll see what happens. And so I decided to try the Atkins diet because I'd heard through the rumor mill that it could help with diabetes and it could help with blood pressure. Although I was quite skeptical of that. I, I, I'd heard that. I really kind of didn't believe it. I thought it was completely ludicrous that eating eggs every morning would help yeah. one's cholesterol or blood pressure. That just seemed ridiculous and outlandish to me at the time. In part because of your medical training and, and what you understood was supposed to be sort of beneficial and obviously, you know, physicians at the time um, for sort of cholesterol and all the rest of it. Absolutely. I mean, at that time, eggs were really thought to be a toxin. Um, they, they, you know, eggs were just a toxic food, not only... Did you, you know, prepare them in some kind of fat? And all fats were bad at that point in time. Nuts were bad. Olive oil was bad. Avocados were bad. There was no such a thing as a healthy fat at that point in time. And the experts, of course, were 
certain, they were 100% certain that they were right, that the, this advice was going to improve people's health. Um, there was no ambiguity. There was no question whatsoever. And so I trusted the medical establishment. These are my medical school professors who teach me. These are the clinicians that are training me. And so I, why would I challenge their certainty? I mean, they're, they're the experts, not me. So I try the Atkins diet, and sure enough, within two or three months, everything is better. My blood pressure is better. My prediabetes is gone. My lipid profile was better. My LDL, surprisingly, even went down um, compared to, you know, so I was maybe a somewhat unusual case in that I went on a low-carb diet, and my LDL improved. So everything across the board got better. But the thing that I noticed pretty quickly within, you know, within a couple of months is I noticed dramatic changes in the way that I felt, my mood, my energy, my sleep, everything was better. Um, and I had more energy and motivation and creativity than I had had probably ever. Yeah. And I was just really dumbstruck by how much it changed that for me. And I began to think, like, maybe if this is doing this to me, I wonder what it might do to people who have treatment-resistant depression, because I have lots of those people in my clinic, and they've already tried dozens of antidepressants and mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. Some of them had already tried shock treatments. Most of them had been in years, if not decades, of psychotherapy. They'd been in and out of hospitals, and nothing was working to treat their depression. And yet I was noticing this really profound antidepressant effect of a change in diet. And so I started using it in patients with treatment-resistant depression, and lo and behold, it was working for some of them. Uh, some of them were reporting that their mood, energy, suicidal thoughts were all dramatically improving. Chris, did you share this with your colleagues at the time? And Because I imagine that to go on a ketogenic diet for a physician um, at that time would have been quite unusual, even though potentially, if I say like a, a dark secret, not really a dark secret, but I, I don't, I wonder how much you might have advertised it and, and, and to then sort of use it on your patients, were there, was there resistance um, amongst your colleagues or skepticism there? Like, how was that environment? Yeah, I wasn't talking about it with my colleagues whatsoever. Um, you know, at that point in time, we you know, we we really didn't even have tons of good clinical evidence published in the medical literature for the Atkins diet for weight loss even. You know, low-carb diets had been around for 200 years, but almost everybody talked about them as fad diets and, of course, dangerous diets. And, um, and at that point in time, you know, 20-some years ago, we really didn't have a lot of randomized controlled trials published in the, the primary literature for even weight loss, let alone diabetes, um, because low-carb diets had been used for diabetes, likewise, for about 200 years. 
But that was the time that those research studies were beginning. And so because they didn't exist at the time, very few of them, you know, the Atkins diet, there, there were definitely physicians who were losing their licenses to practice medicine because they were publicly recommending low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diets. And I had no interest in losing my license. So uh, um, so I just kind of laid low with this yeah. information. I talked about it with my patients. Um, I never forced it on anyone. I, it was always just, hey, th this is an option because we've run out of options for you. You've already tried 30 pills. You've already tried shock treatments. You've already tried decades of psychotherapy. None of it has worked for you. So now I'm just grasping at straws. I'm just trying to figure out, is there anything that might possibly help you? And the patients were equally like, don't you have any ideas? Like, I don't care if it's evidence-based or not. Just tell me something that I might consider trying. And so those were the patients I was recommending it to. And so I had no qualms whatsoever. They had tried and exhausted and failed all of the standard evidence-based treatments. And so uh, it is actually quite common in psychiatry for us to start using off-label or complementary and alternative treatments for which there is very little or no evidence. So I didn't feel that what I was doing was wrong or um, poor medical practice, but uh, I certainly wasn't ready to go start sharing it publicly yet. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I think I said to you in the email, I was at the Metabolic Health Summit in May and heard a number of your talks. Well, one, of course, with your patient and she shared her journey, and I'd love for us to chat about that. So what I found really interesting, and I think both you and Eric Kossoff said that diet was the last resort or is seen as the last resort, which um, which is one of the most fabulous things about the Metabolic Health Summit is raising awareness of how potential impact that diet can have on on a, you know a range of conditions. Um, is that a, a pharmaceutical thing? To your mind, Chris, like that diet has historically been the last resort because pharmaceuticals are forefront in mind? Or is it like, how do we, yeah, what is that about? I think that, I think it is. And it, at the end of the day, it really has to do with how the majority of professionals and even the majority of human beings on this planet conceptualize what causes mental illness. And there are two primary theories for what causes mental illness right now, and they guide the treatment. So one theory is that mental illnesses are due to a chemical imbalance in your brain, and therefore the treatment is, is not a diet, it's not exercise, because that has, those have nothing to do supposedly with chemical imbalances. What, what people need are chemicals to rebalance the chemical imbalance. And those are antidepressants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, and so forth. And so, you know, there are a, a lot of psychiatrists and even neuroscientists would say that is what causes mental illness. It, we know 100%. We know it. We're certain. It's a chemical imbalance. 
And so the only logical treatment is a chemical to try to rebalance the chemical imbalance. The other leading theory for what causes mental illness is stress, trauma, and life adversity. So, you know, kids who are getting bullied and teased, people who have been abused or neglected, people who have been raped, people who have been traumatized in other ways, people who are highly stressed. Um, that Those are the reasons people develop what we call mental illness. And the treatment for that is talk therapy. Those people need therapy. They need a compassionate, educated, informed human being who can help them regain their self-esteem, who can help them relax, decrease their stress response. And if we just give everybody psychotherapy, that will stamp out mental illness. We, will, we won't have any more mental illness. The reality is that, you know, so both of those have nothing to do with diet to, to, to most people. Um, the reality is that, you know, kind of way leaping forward to where I'm at now is I actually think, you know, that both of those have tiny grains of truth or even big grains of truth to them. That yes, neurotransmitters are likely playing a role in mental illness. There's, there's no way around it. That's the way the brain functions. And the reality is the brain is malfunctioning in people who have mental illness, as far as I'm concerned. But people who are traumatized, stressed, they are much more likely to develop mental illness. And helping them cope with adversity can be a really powerful intervention for some people. So there's truth to both of those assertions. But if we take a step back and look at the mental health field as a whole, right now, those treatments fail to work for far too many people. The chemicals that we are giving them, the pills, the, the prescription medications that we are prescribing, fail to rebalance the chemicals if that is the cause of their mental illness. The talk therapy, the trauma-informed psychotherapy, all of the specialty psychotherapies, they too are failing to restore mental health in far too many people. And if you don't believe me, if you think that I'm being overly pessimistic, I just want to point out that mental disorders right now are the leading cause of disability in the entire world. They are certainly the leading cause of disability in the United States, but throughout the entire world, they are the number one cause of disability. And if you look at the number one diagnosis, it is major depression. Depression is the leading cause of disability, even though we have dozens of antidepressants to offer, even though we have all of this talk therapy to offer people, it's not that people aren't getting treatment. They are getting treatment. And yet the treatment fails to work for, for just plain old depression. We can't get those people better. And so there are some serious flaws with our current model in the mental health field. And Chris, is this what has sort of led you to looking 
deeper into uh, mental health conditions more as, as I think I've heard you describe it, metabolic conditions, that actually they are like one in the same. Like, talk me through sort of how you've come to this conclusion and then just the thought process behind it, I suppose. It, it is a great question. I'll try to give you a somewhat concise and short answer. I could, I could talk about this for days on end, probably. <laughs> Great. But the so, so the first thing that I just want to say is, so I've been a Harvard psychiatrist and researcher for more than twenty-five years. I am in charge of psychiatric education of professionals. So one of the nice things about that is that I have the privilege of listening to world-renowned experts in the mental health field. I, I get paid to kind of have them teach other people, and I have to sit there and listen to them and moderate the conference. And you know, so it's it it's actually a wonderful privilege that I have because I am immersed in the state of the art of the mental health field. And one thing that I will say, which I said before, and I'll just reiterate, is we have a lot of problems in the mental health field. Our treatments are failing to work for far too many people. And yet we have a lot of information. We have so much science and data, and yet nobody can put it together in a coherent way. We know that neurotransmitters play a role. Hormones can play a role. Things like estrogen or, or cortisol, we know that those are somehow related to mental health. We know that inflammation plays a role. We know that genetics and epigenetics play a role. We know that uh, stress and adversity plays a role. Loneliness plays a role. Um, all of these things we know with certainty come together to cause mental illnesses in a variety of people. But nobody knows how they all fit together. And it, it was really when I saw the ketogenic diet essentially put into full remission off of psychiatric medications, a chronic, disabling, supposedly lifelong disorder like schizophrenia. I've seen several patients now who have essentially, for all intents and purposes, been quote-unquote cured. Their illness has gone into remission, full remission, off of psychiatric meds. Witnessing that firsthand really was like a rude awakening and a big slap in the face to me as an academic psychiatrist, because this went against everything that I had been taught. It, and, it, and when I first saw it, I really was in disbelief. I was like, this, this cannot be happening. It's impossible. Schizophrenia is a lifelong brain disorder. It is a serious brain disorder that ruins people's lives. And it's been around forever. It's not like it's a new thing. And there's no way a diet put schizophrenia into remission. So after I got all over the initial shock of it all <laughs> and, and the disbelief, I started going on this kind of deep dive journey to try to figure out what in the hell, how in the hell could a ketogenic diet put schizophrenia into remission? The really 
great news for me as uh, an academic psychiatrist is that I was able to call upon about a hundred years of research of using the ketogenic diet in epilepsy. And so we actually know a tremendous amount about how the ketogenic diet works because neurologists have been studying this for decades, trying to figure out how does this diet stop seizures? And it turns out that we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry all the time in tens of millions of people. So um, a lot of medications that maybe some of your listeners have heard of, like Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, Neurontin, or Gabapentin, Valium, Clonopin, Xanax, all of these are anti-seizure medications. But most of you probably don't know them as anti-seizure medications. You probably know them as psychiatric medication because we use them in so many more people because psychiatric disorders are much, much more common than epilepsy is. So even though these, a lot of these medications were first developed for the treatment of epilepsy, we use them every day, tens of millions of people. So the fact that this diet stops seizures was really invaluable. Um, it was an invaluable kind of link for me. So I, could, so I went on this deep dive trying to understand what on earth is this diet doing to the body and brain to stop seizures. But at the same time, I also knew about it just from my own personal experience, from my experience in treating both of my parents who had diabetes. I knew that this diet also treats diabetes. Yes. This diet also treats, like they're studying it for Alzheimer's disease. They're studying, yeah, and certainly it's a weight loss diet. It helps obesity. We know that. It helps so many people lose weight. And, you know, at first I was a little bit overwhelmed by all of that. I'm like, how the hell am I going to explain one treatment treating all of these different things? Like that, nobody's even going to believe this. It doesn't even make sense. Like, what is obesity? What do obesity and diabetes and Alzheimer's disease and epilepsy and mental illness have to do with each other? But the reality is, as I continued on this journey, it turns out that all of those disorders are extraordinarily interconnected with each other. And that if you have one, you're much more likely to have another. Mm. And you can mix and match those disorders in every way you want. And if you have one of them, you are much, much more likely to have another. So for instance, if you have Alzheimer's disease, you're pretty much 100% guaranteed to have mental symptoms. People with Alzheimer's disease are much more likely to have depression, anxiety, insomnia. But 40 to 50% of them have hallucinations and delusions. And those are the hallmark symptoms of what we call schizophrenia. Yes. And if you have schizophrenia first, if you start with schizophrenia and you live to age 66, you're 20 times more likely to already have Alzheimer's disease. 20 times more likely. So just that one example, people who start with a mental illness are much more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. People with Alzheimer's disease are much more likely to have symptoms of mental illness. We can't talk about one without talking about the other. And so it was really fascinating to me that, and, and here we are studying one treatment for both sets of disorders. And so what can I learn from this? 
And at the end of the day, when I put it all together, I realized that I I truly had stumbled upon something beyond my wildest dreams. I had I did not set out to develop any theory of what causes mental illness. I did not set out to even write a book. I was just trying to understand how the hell is this diet working and like can I make any sense out of this at all? Like and I was prepared to like end up at a dead end and just figure that oh yeah, I can't figure it out just like nobody can figure out anything about mental health. Um and at the end of the day, the conclusion that I reached, the simple bullet conclusion, is that mental disorders, and shockingly, all of them, every mental disorder, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, even anorexia nervosa, even alcoholism, that all of them are metabolic disorders of the brain. And that once we understand that, once people understand that, you actually can coherently and very clearly connect all of the dots of mental illness. That is the way that we can understand how neurotransmitters, inflammation, genetics and epigenetics, stress and hormones, uh, you know, alcohol and drug use, all of it can come together to result in what we call mental illness for different people. I do want to say just one quick thing, because that's I know that that's really hard to believe for a lot of people. And I just want to point out, there are many ways that you can enter into or get into a metabolic problem. And so for some people, it starts, you know, at a young age. It probably is related to things that you inherited from your parents. Um, but there's more to genetics. There's more to inheriting things from your parents than just genetics. And yeah. that's a really hopeful message. But um, so for some people, they can start off with, you know, these predispositions that then lead them to anxiety, depression, and or even a bipolar or schizophrenia. But there are other people who might start over drinking alcohol. And it turns out that alcohol is a metabolic toxin. Alcohol poisons specifically your mitochondria. Um, and likewise, marijuana, I'm sorry to rain on everyone's parade here, but uh, marijuana is a metabolic toxin. Yeah. Um, it makes people feel better because it slows brain function. And for some people, they like to have their brain function slowed. They, it, you feel mellow. If, if your mind is wor- running with anxiety, it can be really beneficial to slow that down. And then you feel relaxed because your mind's not running anymore. So that could be beneficial. If you're having trouble sleeping because you're anxious and your thoughts are racing, marijuana can slow that down. So that's great. But slowing brain function over the long run is actually not what we should be striving to do. (laughs) As somebody who is a proponent of brain health, having full-on brain function is a really good thing. Um, So this theory, this metabolic theory of mental illness is actually the first time that we can connect all of the dots of mental illness, the biological, the psychological, and the social, and put them together into one coherent theory. 
Can I ask you a, a few questions on that? Um, just as you were talking, Chris, a few things came up for me. So I have uncles. I had uncles on sides. So my mum's brother and my dad's brother, they both developed or schizophrenia over their lifetime and both died prematurely, like in their early 60s, uh, one with alcoholism and the other with heart conditions, potentially related to lifestyle, other lifestyle sort of um, things. So is it is it common to see mental illness and addictions together like like that because I was just thinking about as you were sort of grouping them together that both of them had issues with addiction but different different types absolutely so we and this is a fact this is not theory or speculation we have tremendous amount of data so people with addiction are more likely to develop mental illness but people with mental illness are more likely to develop an addiction so again, I talked about, for instance, both alcohol and marijuana, slow brain function. For somebody who's having excruciating, tormenting hallucinations and delusions, that can be really helpful in the short run to slow their brain function. And they can get addicted in that way because they're, they're trying to feel better. They're trying to stop their thoughts that are tormenting them. And lo and behold, alcohol and marijuana actually help in the short run. The problem is that they make matters worse in the long run. And, and once you enter into an addiction cycle, you're really in trouble. The other thing that you mentioned is that both of them died prematurely. And that is well established. Um, so we have long known that people with serious mental illness, which includes schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, that those people die early deaths. And depending on what study you look at, the, the loss of lifespan can be as, as low as seven years and as high as 30 years of life lost. Um, but in fact, we have recent research from a population study of over 8 million people demonstrating that all mental illness, every mental disorder, shortens lifespan. So this includes ADHD. It includes personality disorders. It includes mild anxiety disorders. It includes depression. It includes all of it. All mental disorders result in a shortened lifespan. On average, people with mental illness Men die 10 years younger than they should, and women lose seven years of life off their lifespan. These are not trivial reductions. It's more than a 10% reduction for both men and women in total longevity simply because they have a mental illness. And in fact, mental illnesses are known risk factors for all of the metabolic disorders. So if you have a mental illness, you're more likely to become obese, you're more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, and you're more likely to develop cardiovascular disease at a younger age. And I already mentioned, you're also more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. So it turns out we have good, robust data that people with mental illness 
are not only dying early deaths, but we can actually measure, based on a variety of metrics, inflammation, telomere length, and other markers of aging, that people with mental disorders are aging prematurely. They are aging at a faster rate than people without mental illness. And interestingly, these exact same things are found in people who have metabolic disorders. People who have obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease are also aging prematurely. Yeah, it's interesting. And Chris, can we clarify on marijuana? The what, what I find, well, I think it's uh, it's interesting what you're saying there because people, of course, we're much more aware now of the potential research going on in the cannabinoids and their role in sort of helping with certain mental health problems and pain and, and CBD oil. So are you able to clarify for us what the potential past is there between, you know, marijuana and the CBD oil that is so popular? So this is something that I actually dive into in the book. Um, because the theory, the theory that I'm presenting um, and the, the specific mechanisms of action all the way down to the cellular level explain perfectly the observations that you just mentioned. So marijuana is being touted as, you know, great for all sorts of conditions. It can stop seizures. It can help with chronic pain. It can help with nausea in people who have cancer or people who have end-stage, you know, AIDS, you know, or other illnesses that usually people lose weight, they lose their appetite. And yet, marijuana can also cause memory impairment and cognitive impairment it 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 results in kind of an amotivational syndrome which means lack of motivation people lose their drive and their motivation they you know these are this is the term usually used this pothead these people are hanging out at their you know the quintessential pothead is the 20 something year old male who is still living at home with mom and dad. He smokes marijuana all day. He doesn't care about having a job because, you know, mom and dad are there. Today. He doesn't care about ambition. He's just, he's happy playing video games. And he has lost all drive to be a productive citizen in the world and in his community. And he doesn't seem to be bothered by it because marijuana is impairing his motivation. But marijuana has also been associated with a fourfold increased risk of a psychotic disorder, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So heavy marijuana users, that quintessential pothead that I just described, is at four times elevated risk for eventually developing schizophrenia because of his marijuana use. Now, there's been a lot of debate about whether, you know, whether maybe maybe he was already destined to develop schizophrenia, and so he's just more likely to use marijuana to try to calm the symptoms or something. It, it does, there does seem to be at least a little bit of truth in that, but researchers have studied this question relentlessly, and it seems to go both ways. 
So people who already have pre-existing mental symptoms are more likely to use marijuana to probably to self-medicate and try to calm those symptoms. But people who, you know, had who were perfectly normal and fine, they had no mental symptoms whatsoever. They have no family history of mental illness to speak of. Although everybody's got something, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, um, <laughs> they uh they, if they start using marijuana, because they got, all their friends are using it, and they, so they started using it, they are much more likely to develop another mental illness on top of marijuana addiction. Um, and, uh, and so the way to understand it is that all of those are the consequence of slowing brain metabolism. That's what marijuana is doing. So that if you have seizures, slowing brain metabolism will actually help stop that seizure. And that can be really useful if you're seizing. And I'm all for it. If you're seizing and you don't have anything else available, by all means, take some marijuana. You smoke it, you eat it, do whatever. Somebody can inject it if, if they've got an injectable form. I don't care. Somebody seizing is a medical emergency. That needs to be treated. But let me be clear, slowing brain metabolism can have useful short-term effects. It can stop anxiety. It can stop chronic pain or it can decrease chronic pain. But it comes with the risk of making those problems worse over the long run because you are impairing metabolism. So marijuana is a perfect example of something that can reduce symptoms in the short run which can be extremely beneficial and which can get people hooked on it because they can then feel like, well, it helped me. It, it decreased my anxiety. Uh, why wouldn't I keep using it? And I will help you understand the science in this book to help you understand why that might actually make you worse off in the long run. Someone who very your exact case study that you mentioned that 20s male pothead style who has had periods across his life of sort of being in and then being out of smoking marijuana and successfully off it but had a period of increased anxiety coming off it um, which is exactly what you've you've just described Chris is it a long-term change to the brain that can't be resolved when someone comes off something, you know, anything like that, that, that impacts negatively on brain metabolism? Or in your, do we know whether the changes in the brain then actually persist in the long term? So we, we you know, it's a wonderful question and a really important question. Um, and researchers have been studying this, that, that exact question for decades now. We have some evidence that while the brain is developing in particular, people are especially vulnerable. And because brain development happens in very specific ways and there are developmental windows, which means that you, you get a finite period of time, usually at specific ages, during which your brain needs to do specific things to, to develop in, in specific ways. And if it doesn't develop properly, that opportunity 
to go back in time and redevelop it or correct any abnormalities can sometimes be lost. However, we there is this whole other field called neuroplasticity, where the brain can heal itself, the brain can adapt, we can we can help brain restore brain functions even when they've been lost. So I I don't I don't want to paint a simple picture. It, it there isn't a clear black and white answer, unfortunately, um, because I do think developmental problems can exist for some people and changing that, especially when it happens at a very young age, anywhere from, you know, in utero all the way up to like age six or something, tremendous things are happening in terms of social skill development, in terms of language acquisition, cognitive functions, bonding with your parents, attaching learning how to be human in society, learning how to love and trust, or learning that you cannot love, that you cannot trust. Those can be extraordinarily difficult to undo. So when we look at children who have been horribly abused or neglected, or children who are extremely malnourished or, or other kinds of horrible catastrophic things, it can be hard to quote-unquote fix them and completely restore their physical brain mental health later on. We can do things. I, I don't want to say it's hopeless for them. We can improve their health, but we may not be able to undo some of that damage. We know in adolescent studies that heavy alcohol use can have lasting effects that we can measure into adulthood. Um, so binge drinking in particular has been problematic. Likewise, heavy marijuana use in adolescence. Researchers can measure areas of your brain aging prematurely already. As a 17-year-old, as if you are smoking a lot of weed, you, your brain is already aging prematurely and parts of your brain will be thinner than they should be which means you are not developing brain tissue to help you think and create and thrive in the world like you should be developing. Now, again, with neuroplasticity, can we undo that damage? Can we reinvigorate that? We really don't have clear answers yet. The hopeful news in my mind is, is the concept of neuroplasticity and is the concept of restoring metabolism. So simply stopping marijuana will stop the damage, but it won't in and of itself restore health. So in order to restore health, we might need to use metabolic interventions. And that might include fairly simple things like changing your diet, yes, like exercise, prioritizing sleep, getting really good sleep, reducing what stress you do have in your life. Those types of interventions can be extraordinarily powerful to restoring health and maximizing your physical and brain health. Awesome, Chris. Can we, and I, and I don't doubt that your book will absolutely comprehensively uh, detail out how the ketogenic diet helps with brain energy. Can you briefly outline 
we do know about how the ketogenic diet helps in these mental health conditions and disorders? So I will briefly outline it. And just to share with you and your audience, I will, I will confess if, if this is going to be a big disappointment. My book is actually not about the ketogenic diet, which is a shock to a lot of people. Um, Actually, yes. You would think it would be about the ketogenic diet, and so many people think that it's going to be all about the ketogenic diet, and I'm going to include, like, what, you know, diet plans and recipes. And No, it is not. My book centers on the question, what causes mental illness? And I include everything that I've been talking about so far with you today. I talk about stress and adversity and childhood abuse and drugs and alcohol and neurotransmitters and inflammation and hormones and all of it and how it all fits together. And the ketogenic diet is an extraordinarily powerful metabolic intervention. That's the way I think about it. I think about it as a way to dramatically change and improve your metabolism. Um, and so again, we, the great news is that we actually have a robust evidence base. So ketogenic diet does a ton of things. It decreases insulin and glucose levels, which can help address insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is important, not just for like type 2 diabetes and your weight, but it's also really important for brain function. We have insulin receptors located throughout our brains, and these impact brain function, including mood um, and other types of quote-unquote mental symptoms. And, uh, you know, we have good evidence that insulin resistance seems to be playing a role in bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, as well as chronic depression. So ketogenic diet helps improve all of that. Ketogenic diet also rebalances or changes neurotransmitter systems, GABA, glutamate, adenosine. It changes ion channel regulation, calcium regulation, which is a really important signal in the cell. It uh, decreases brain inflammation, it, uh, and it decreases inflammation throughout the body, but being a psychiatrist, I'm really particularly interested in the brain. Um, it changes the gut microbiome. And some researchers actually argue that that is maybe the primary mechanism of action, these changes in the gut microbiome. I kind of don't believe that that's the primary mechanism of action. It certainly is one of the mechanisms of action. Um, but uh, I, there are just so many others. It, and one of the things that I will share with you is that mitochondria... Um, Mitochondria are critical to understanding metabolism. If you want to understand metabolism, you have to understand mitochondria. And they are much, much more complicated and I use the word magnificent than most people realize. Um, they do so much more than just create ATP. You know, most people know them as the powerhouse of the cell, but they do so much more than that. And it turns out that the ketogenic diet increases mitochondrial production and a process called mitophagy, uh, which uh, basically means getting rid of old defective mitochondria and replacing them with new ones. And the ketogenic diet also induces glo more globally autophagy, 
which is this kind of repair, healing, waste disposal process in the human body. So that when the human body thinks that it is fasting, which is what the ketogenic diet is doing, it's tricking your body into thinking that it's really fasting when it's not. But when the human body thinks that it's fasting, it actually, you know, it taps into your fat stores, and we all know that's a good thing. But it actually does so much more than that. Um, it, it, all of the cells in your body actually start scavenging for any old or defective proteins or parts, cell parts. And they end up using those old and defective proteins and cell parts as an energy source. Because the body realizes, hey, yo, we're, we're, there's no food available. We got to start making do. But instead of, instead of random chaotic destruction, the human body doesn't just start destroying like all your healthy muscle that you just spent you know, months trying to build. It actually looks for the old and defective stuff first. It has this ridiculously elegant and amazing process to identify the old parts first. And it's those old parts that get shuttled to a part of the cell for recycling. And they get degraded. But then when the person eats again, when, when the person has enough protein and energy to create new, you know, new parts, the body does that. It replaces these old defective cells, parts of cells that got recycled and replaces them with brand new ones. So it's it's a way of kind of cleaning house, so to speak. It's a way of um, getting rid of old defective things in your body, and then when you eat again, replacing them with new shiny ones. So your 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 body literally is kind of uh, improving its health, and that is extraordinarily powerful. Yeah, totally. Um. Chris, your when you mention sort of mitochondria biogenesis, um, does your book include information about cold water therapy or sauna therapy for mental health conditions? And have you used it in your practice at all and, and seen any success? So it, it's a it's a great question. Uh, the earlier versions of my book did include cold, um, uh, hot and cold therapies. Um, whether it's saunas, ice baths, or other things. Um, and interestingly, the mental health field, although that sounds kind of new and trendy or archaic, the mental health field for centuries actually used hot and cold therapies. Um, way back in the day, before the advent of psychotropic medications, we would put patients in ice baths, we would put them in saunas, we would wrap them in towels, cold or hot towels. We would do all sorts of things. And for the most part, most people nowadays think that that was just barbaric and inhumane and we were torturing the poor mentally ill. But the reality is that people were doing that, like all of the psychiatric hospitals throughout the world were doing it. And they actually might have been doing it because it was really actually helping. (laughs) And (laughs) once you understand metabolism and mitochondria, you can understand oh my gosh, maybe they weren't barbaric quacks after all. Maybe they were actually onto something that was really 
truly beneficial. So unfortunately, I had to cut that material from the book because the book got longer than I thought it was going to be. Um, and so that ended up getting cut because the reality is we, we do have some evidence. There have been clinical trials looking at saunas in particular. Not as much clinical evidence for the cold therapy, but we have a decent, I mean, at least a few pilot yeah. trials or observational trials of sauna therapy and other types of heat therapy to improve mental health. And we do, there does, there are at least some positive pilot trials um, looking at like heated yoga or sauna therapy or other things. And yes, for all of those reasons, hot and cold therapy can stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis, can actually can improve metabolism broadly in a lot of ways with, you know, their the body has heat shock proteins and yeah. cold shock proteins that um, that actually end up being really helpful to metabolism broadly. You can change some of your white fat cells into beige fat cells. Yeah. I don't know that we can go all the way to brown fat cells, but it gets them closer to being brown. Yeah. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, brown fat is like, golden it, it's it's utopia for the human for fat cells you want as many brown fat cells as you can get white fat cells are toxic and evil and they're inflammatory <laughs> and they're just bad for you um, but you can turn white fat cells into beige fat cells mm. and guess what the one difference is there is one and only one primary difference between brown fat and white fat and beige fat and it is the number of mitochondria in that cell. Yeah. Um, brown fat has tons of healthy mitochondria. White fat has very few mitochondria. And those mitochondria are probably more defective or dysfunctional. And uh, when we beige those cells, we're actually stimulating mitochondrial production mm. in those cells. Amazing. And it's interesting the number of my um, clients in my sort of client groups, we do things like cold water therapy challenges. And we're, I don't think we're in there long enough to stimulate any mitochondria biogenesis because it's, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. But what the, the constant thing which people report is that they feel invigorated, they feel amazing because they have this fear of doing it first. And then they do it. And it might only be a 20 second cold shower, but that feeling of accomplishment plus the fact that they're freezing, that's quite invigorating, I think really helps, it absolutely helps their, how they feel on a day-to-day -day basis, which was just amazing to me. And also I know the benefits of it because I love doing that sort of cold water stuff after a run or that kind of thing. Like it's, it feels so good. I just feel the way I do when I run. It's like that endorphin rush. Yes. Well, and that's so cold water therapy is going to stimulate adrenaline release. Yeah. And that adrenaline release, release is actually going when you're exposed to extreme cold. That adrenaline in particular is stimulating your fat cells yes. because your fat cells are a really good source for heat production. And when you get adrenaline stimulating fat cells, you actually get mitochondrial biogenesis. So I suspect people feel better immediately after because they get the adrenaline rush. 
Yeah. Um, after you after you experience the pain and discomfort <laughs> and the <laughs> shivering and you're miserable, after <gasps> all of that, then you you feel a little bit of that adrenaline high still. But that adrenaline high is training your body to be able to produce more heat. Mm. And um Heat is directly related to metabolism and mitochondria. Heat production yeah. is all about metabolism and mitochondria at the end of the day. Yeah, amazing. Um, Chris, with regards to the ketogenic diet, one thing that struck me at the Metabolic Health Summit is uh, the report that, you know, um, there was a talk on epilepsy and that the ketogenic diet was an option for infants who were, and I believe there was a case study in there as an infant who may have been about six months old, and they put her on ketogenic formula because of her um, the seizures that she was having. And I believe it was like I remember looking at the brain pattern and it just constant seizing across the day. And she was only on that ketogenic formula for maybe six months, and it resulted in a change in the wiring of the brain for her too. Now at 15 or 16, I believe, she came off the ketogenic formula, was able to have a fairly quote unquote normal diet and her brain has actually been chemically rewired. What do we know about the, I guess, the persistent effects of a ketogenic approach for mental health disorders? Is it something that if you've got an issue, like an, an actual diagnosis, um, it's something you would need to do for the rest of your life. Do we not know that? Um, what do we know there? It's a really important question, and unfortunately, we don't have good data. I the the long the longest case that I know of was a woman who was seventy years old. Mm with chronic paranoid schizophrenia for 53 years. Um, she started the ketogenic diet at age 70, and she ended up losing 150 pounds. She got rid of her schizophrenia. Her schizophrenia went into complete remission off all medications. She no longer had to see anybody. But um, she she was well and healthy for 15 more years and unfortunately she recently passed away from covid pneumonia at age 85 but uh to the best of my knowledge she is the long, at least from what i know she is the one woman who's done the diet the longest now, my understanding is that she was able to cheat around the holidays and other occasions and go completely off the diet, eat whatever she wants, and she did not get more symptomatic. But she almost always gravitated back toward at least a low-carbohydrate, if not ketogenic diet. And that, you know, it's not clear to me what that means you know, when, when somebody's been tormented for 53 years and finally finds an answer, who could blame her for being afraid to go off the diet long term? Um, you know, it, it, it may not be. It, it, she might have been like that child or like a lot of people with epilepsy who can maybe stop the diet after two to five years. That's usually the range for, a, you know, older people with epilepsy. 
They usually do the ketogenic diet for anywhere from two to five years, and then they can often transition off the diet. And many people, not all people, but many of them can maintain whatever benefits they got from the diet. So if they did become completely seizure-free, they can often remain seizure-free completely off the diet. Um, but again, not all people can get off the diet. And, and there are some people who have like gen rare genetic disorders um, that cause problems with glucose metabolism in the brain. There's this disorder called um, glucose transporter 1 deficiency syndrome. It, it's a genetic thing, but it basically means that your brain has trouble getting enough glucose to function properly. And those people need to do a ketogenic diet for the rest of their lives. There's no reversing that genetic problem. But the real answer is that for other people with mental disorders, we don't have good long-term data on how long they need to do the diet and or which diets they can transition to. Like, do they always need to stay relatively low carb? Can they go to something that has more protein, even if it's not ketogenic? Can they maybe add more fruit back, which would not be even necessarily by some people's definition, low carb? Maybe it's a little bit higher carb or moderate carb diet. Can they do that? That might be more of a paleo diet. And I know that there are lots of people with lots of opinions, but we don't have good research data to really inform any of those questions right now. So interesting. What I find somewhat frustrating from a, a clinical perspective is that there's this ketogenic diet which could have a profound positive impact for someone if they you know were to embark on it yet constantly if you're looking at social media sort of traditional health authorities opinions on ketogenic diet or if you ever read the best and worst diets of the year from what is it US news or something ketogenic diet is always sort of uh, positioned as this extremely arduous, very difficult to adhere to, it's expensive, um, it's the worst diet in the world. And notwithstanding your original sort of thoughts and most people's thoughts of it's going to be terrible for my cardiovascular health, you know. So it's almost the option is not there for so many people. It's taken off the table before they even get an opportunity to sort of try it. And I think I, f I find that frustrating as a nutritionist. I can imagine in your position, um, you must find that even more uh, frustrating. It's really interesting because, you know, on one hand, I 100% can relate to and understand everything you just said. And, you know, some of the patients that I have on ketogenic diets will go to their primary care doctors, for instance, who will tell them, you've got to stop this. Who's got you on this diet? What kind of a quack is he? This is awful. You cannot do this diet. It's dangerous. You must stop. Um, so I, I definitely understand all of that. The hopeful news in my mind is that, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, you can't get anybody to do a ketogenic diet and stay on it long term. I'm like, well, I'm getting people with chronic schizophrenia and bipolar disorder to do this diet and stay on it long term and lose 150 pounds and keep it off for years. So don't talk to me about not being able to get people <laughs> to do this diet. And I'm kind of like, well, what's wrong with you? If you can't get a, a relatively quote unquote normal healthy person 
who does not have a mental illness, if you can't get them to do a diet and lose weight, then I would say there's something wrong with your methods. <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, because I'm getting people who are severely impaired and ill to do this diet. But I think one of the things that I have going for me is that the people that I'm working with are desperate. They are being told that they have no hope, that there is no hope for their life. There is no hope for getting rid of this disorder. That they are going to be tormented by symptoms for the rest of their life. And they're probably going to be like everyone else and die an early death. And they're going to be disabled and tormented until that time comes. And that's a pretty miserable, horrible thing to be told. So when I tell them I have an option, and this option has helped put chronic 53-year schizophrenia into remission for some people, a lot of the people that I'm working with will figure out how to do it. Yeah. It, they may not be perfect right at first, and I need to be patient with that and I need to teach them and educate them and motivate them and all of that. So I'm not saying that it's always easy that I give them a handout and then it just magically happens because it's not. It, it's not magical like that. But the people that I'm working with are desperate. They are desperate to do something to improve their health and especially their mental health, these symptoms that are tormenting them. And and I can get them to do it. I want to remind, so the great news is that we have a lot of leading psychiatrists and neuroscientists around the world who are extremely interested and excited about this treatment. And the reason, again, is because I'm calling on the neuroscience epilepsy literature. We have a lot of it to call upon. So we have decades of hard clinical evidence that this diet changes brain function in all the ways that I mentioned earlier. And that gets a lot of leading psychiatrists and neuroscientists excited because they're like, oh my gosh, like we, 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 somebody needs to be trying this. And then I also just want to point out the need for more effective mental health treatment is urgent and dire. Urgent and dire. Like we all, most of us kind of feel like the need for more effective obesity treatment is urgent and dire as well. But people aren't being tormented by their obesity in the same way that people are being tormented by their mental illness. And people aren't going on disability because they're overweight or obese. Most of them aren't. Most of them are still able to work jobs and contribute to society and have meaningful relationships. And so the urgency for a lot of those people is kind of like, eh, if a diet's really hard and it's uncomfortable, like, why am I going to change it? The people that I'm talking about, which again, there are lots of them, a billion people on the planet before the pandemic, this was before the pandemic. The pandemic has only made things worse. But before the pandemic, one billion people on this planet were diagnosed with a mental or substance use disorder. Many of those people are desperate for better answers, and they will do whatever it takes. And 
if we can establish that metabolism and metabolic treatments like the ketogenic diet, but also like others, like exercise and good sleep and getting off of substances that are poisoning your metabolism, um, if we can establish this as a new way to think about mental illness and new ways to treat it, there is no doubt in my mind that we will have a tidal wave of interest in getting these treatments like now. And and that's where, for better or worse, I'm kind of afraid of this tidal wave coming at me. <laughs> I really am kind of afraid of it because I already get I already get contacted by so many people from around the world who are desperate, who are desperate. Like, you know, Dr. Palmer, you have to treat me or you have to treat my mom with schizophrenia or you have to treat my brother or my daughter or my son. Or... And I am sadly having to turn all of these people away because I am one human being. I cannot treat the world. And so my part of my goal is to train up more clinicians and that's where you know people like you Mickey and a lot of your listeners are going to be critically important to this mission that people a lot of people don't know about the ketogenic diet or how to do it they and they certainly don't know the art of doing it. So they don't know like how do you really implement it? How do you how do you go out to a restaurant and eat keto? Like how do you say no to people when they're shoving bread in your face? Like how how can you politely say no and not make enemies of everybody in your life but stay on your diet? And and all of that is like the art of implementing this scientific intervention. And that's where so many people who are part of the low-carb and keto community can be invaluable and helpful with recipes, with support groups on social media, with, with all sorts of things. Um, and I am hopeful and at the same time fearful of this tidal wave <laughs> coming at me, coming at us, of people desperately wanting better answers. Yeah. No, and I, I just think it's fabulous, Chris. And if I circle back to how we started this conversation, how you got onto the ketogenic diet, not for mental health purposes, but noticed a change in your mental health from doing it. And I think, you know, if I think about people out there don't know how good they could feel when they make shifts in their diet, I think that's that's an important thing which I like to um, sort of consider with it, as as you said, and also the fact that as metabolic dis, you know, this is all part of the metabolic disorders issue that we've got. And I think the latest stat I saw was seven point six percent of the U.S. population were in fact metabolically healthy. Now there's reason to be hopeful, I think. And I'll just share with you one small anecdote before I get you to share with us where we can find your book when it comes out is that I had a client and she did not come to me for mental health issues it was for something completely different but she shared with me after you know we you know I made changes to her diet which included a lower carb approach certainly uh, and higher protein and higher fat she was like Mickey I all this stuff is going really well and I thought prior 
to seeing you that I was just an anxious person. I thought that anxiety was just part of my sort of makeup. Uh, but now after four weeks of doing this, I can see how much this diet has, you know, that anxiety doesn't define me. You know, I'm, this is not something which I, you know, have to um, live with. And I just found that so powerful because it didn't even come up in our initial conversation because she came to me for something completely different. So I just wonder how many people could benefit from this that don't even realize that they could as well, which is why I'm excited to yes. sort of talk about Look, it. I, I am 100% with you. I think, you know, most people who are metabolically compromised will lack or have reduced energy, motivation, creativity. Um, they will have slightly or sometimes moderately or severely depressed mood. Um, they will be more likely to worry and, and, you know, and then the anxiety can interfere with their sleep. And so it's all a vicious cycle because now they're not sleeping and now that's impairing their metabolism even more. And, um, and then they're more likely to have higher levels of cortisol, and then that causes them to crave more sugar and junk food. And it's just it's it's a trap. It's a it's a it's a vicious trap that can be hard to get out of. But I agree with you. I think that a lot of those people, it's such a slow, subtle process that they just think that they're getting older, or that you know that that life just is not you know, that they're somehow different than everyone else. Everyone else can be happy and peppy and full of energy, but that's not the life that they were born to live. And it's it's amazing what improving metabolic health can do for people's for people's entire lives. It's not just losing weight or reversing diabetes or preventing cardiovascular disease it's also having more energy and confidence and motivation and passion and better sleep and less reliance on drugs and alcohol to calm your nerves and and all of it and um and it really is uh you know i know this firsthand i i before i changed my diet I was one of those people who just thought, you know, life is kind of hard. And um and I had been clinically depressed earlier in life. And um so I knew what that was like and I really did think that I was just different. I was genetically different than other people. And uh and after I changed my diet, everything changed. It's extremely hopeful and exciting. And at the same time, it's a little heartbreaking to think of all of the hundreds of millions of people out there who are living less than ideal lives because they just don't know any better. Yeah. And well, thank goodness there are the likes of you who are training people to do what you're doing. And you come on podcasts like this so, you know, more people get the information. And of course, you write a book. Chris, can you tell us when your book will be available and um, and where we can find more from you? As I understand it, you write in psychology today or you used to. Like, So what's your best sort of point of contact? So the best point of contact is my website, chrispalmermd.com. 
So if you go there, you will, on the front page toward the bottom, you'll see information about the book. Um, the book is called Brain Energy, and you can order the book anywhere right now uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all sorts of, you know, Target, Walmart, all sorts of other sites um, that have the book available. It's only available in English right now. Um, it will be published on November 15th. So November 15th is the release date, but you can pre-order it now. Um, and uh, and if you follow me on social media, you will be able to follow along with this journey. I'm probably most active on Twitter, um, but I do uh, sometimes publish articles in Psychology Today and other things. So, uh, and I'm... I speak at a lot of conferences, especially low-carb keto conferences, but increasingly at mental health conferences, uh, just broad, general, traditional, conservative mental health conferences. I am spreading the word about metabolic interventions. That is excellent. I'm really happy to hear that. And I love following you on Twitter, Chris. I absolutely love looking at your feed and it's always so informative and on all things sort of brain, mental health and low carbon and whatnot. So um, thank you so much for your time today. And I'll put links in the show notes to those contact details and um, really look forward to reading your book when it's out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mickey. Alrighty, hopefully you got a lot from that and as I said and as we discussed, Dr. Palmer's book will be available in November and well worth pre-ordering that one. Next week on the show, I bring to you the discussion that I have with Taylor Sitter, the Head of Research and Development at Levels, a continuous glucose monitoring app, all about the importance of measuring and understanding our blood sugar response to food such a great conversation until then though you can catch me over on facebook at mickey willardin nutrition over on twitter and instagram at mickey willardin or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to any of my self-directed fat loss programs or real food programs my ketogenic longevity plan or the recipe portal access where for 12 bucks a month you get access to my regularly updated recipe library which incorporates easy to administer and execute recipes most of them all low carb and, and pretty delicious you get access to my facebook members only page where we are running a live facebook forums and i'm also available to answer any of your nutrition and health related questions that is over on mickeywillardin.com and until next week have a great week and i will see you again